This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. Uh, my name is David Willits, President of the Resolution Foundation. We are launching today our report, Precautionary Tales, tackling the problem of low saving among UK households. Uh, you will hear in a moment from our economist, uh, Molly Broom, who has uh, prepared this report with Ian Mulhern. We'll then hear from Joe Phillips, who is Director of Research uh, no, sorry, we'll next then after that hear from Steve Webb. I mustn't forget Steve. We served in the same government, um, who is the former Liberal Pensions Minister, and then from Joe Phillips. Um, I should also thank our sponsors. We've done this in partnership with Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust and appreciate their support for this project. Uh, and now to set the ball rolling, Molly, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, I would also like to extend my thanks to the Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust for um, funding this research and also to my co-authors Ian Mulhern and Simon Pittaway for their input on the report. So our report shows that Britain is facing a triple savings challenge where families have insufficient rainy day savings to cushion small cash flow shocks, inadequate precautionary saving to get them through large and unexpected financial shocks, and insufficient saving to provide an adequate income in retirement. This triple savings challenge leaves families exposed to financial hardship today, but also potentially a lower standard of living in older age. So having money set aside in a rainy day, uh, for a rainy day is at the heart of financial resilience, but millions of families in Britain lack even modest amounts of savings that they can use in the event of a small cash flow shock. This chart here shows that 30% of working age people in Britain live in families with savings below £1,000, increasing to almost half of those among the bottom third of the income distribution. Low levels of rainy day savings leaves these families financially vulnerable. And the consequences of this vulnerability became clear during the cost of living crisis. Evidence from our October cost of living survey shows that 46% of people with savings below £1,000 reported having used credit cards, overdraft, overdrafts or to have borrowed money to cover daily living expenses between July and October last year. And this was compared to just 18% of those with savings of uh, £1,000 or more. Likewise, from the second row, you can see that those with savings uh, below £1,000 were three times more likely to have fallen into arrears on their priority bills compared to those with larger savings balances. And then finally, this chart shows that half of people with savings below £1,000 said they would be unable to repair or replace a major electrical good if it broke, compared to 15% of those with savings of £1,000 or more showing that having low rainy day savings leaves people ill-equipped to respond to an unexpected expense. There is also a strong association between financial vulnerability and health and well-being. Again, using evidence from our cost of living survey, we see that those with lower savings balances were more likely to report worse general and mental health outcomes. 
For example, nearly a third of adults with savings of £1,000 or less reported that their mental health was poor, compared to around uh, 1 in 10 of those with savings of over £1,000. And these differences remain even when you control for other factors that are commonly associated with people's mental health, such as age, income, debt levels, and so on. So the previous two charts show that even having relatively modest amounts of savings, save up to £1,000, provides some level of financial resilience. However, this amount is unlikely to be a sufficient safety net in the face of larger, more substantial financial shocks, such as a period of prolonged unemployment or family breakdown. Uh, the amount of precautionary savings that someone might need in the event of a large financial shock will depend on their individual circumstances, but a common benchmark often used is around three months' income. Again, we find that many families fall below this benchmark, with this chart showing that over half of working-age people were living in families with savings of less than three months' income. And unlike the first chart, you can see that these bars are much flatter, showing that this is not just a problem concentrated among those in the bottom third of the income distribution. Having small or no precautionary savings in the face of a significant financial shock can have severe consequences. For example, a period of prolonged unemployment can be really problematic for families with low savings, especially considering the, uh, the UK's low level of out-of-work benefits, where the basic rate of unemployment benefit offers a replacement rate of just 14% of average earnings. This means that UK workers that become unemployed tend to face a significant fall in income. And we can see that from this chart here, which shows that in the UK, 40% of employed people experience an income loss of 20% or more from one year to the next when becoming non-employed. And you can see that this proportion was much higher in the UK than that seen in most other high-income OECD countries. So we've showed that the UK has two precautionary savings challenges. But as I mentioned before, there's also a third challenge, and that is that saving for retirement is also too low. Analysis from the Department of Work and Pensions undertaken last year shows that 39% of people aged 22 to state pension age were undersaving for retirement when measured against target replacement rates. So in other words, 39% of people were expected to have an income of less than two-thirds of their pre-retirement income. Looking at the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association's Retirement Living Standards benchmarks, um, I'm sure most people would hope to have a comfortable standard of living in retirement. However, this chart shows that almost 9 in 10 people weren't saving enough to achieve this benchmark. Uh, so maybe people would settle to have a moderate standard of living in retirement, but again, less than half of people were saving enough in their pension to achieve this benchmark. So we've shown that the UK is facing a triple savings challenge of insufficient rainy day savings, inadequate savings to cope financially with bigger shocks, and undersaving for retirement. Successive governments have recognised these challenge, challenges and implemented various policies to address them, albeit with mixed success. On the precautionary side, government has introduced a variety of financial incentives to save. These have typically taken the form of tax breaks or bonuses paid on account balances. However, these incentives have proved to be expensive with an estimated cost of 8 billion in 2023-24, inefficient as they overwhelmingly benefit better off households, and ineffective at generating additional saving. On the pension side, however, policy has been more effective. Auto-enrolment has transformed pension saving with the participation rate, so the proportion of people with a pension, climbing from 47% in 2012 to 79% in 2021. 
This shows that behavioural interventions are more likely to be successful at addressing Britain's triple savings challenge. So auto-enrolment clearly provides a successful framework for addressing the pension savings problem. Surely the obvious solution for policymakers would just be to raise the default auto-enrolment contribution rates beyond 8%. Well, there are a couple of reasons why policymakers may want to proceed with caution. First, there is a risk that opt-out rates could jump up if people feel that they can no longer afford to contribute at the higher default level. The second, and perhaps even more pressing risk, is that higher default contribution rates could exacerbate the precautionary savings problem further. For example, academic literature found that when auto-enrolment default contribution rates were increased from 2% to 8% between 2018 and 2019, for every £1 reduction in take-home pay as a result of higher pension contributions, a third of this was funded through lower consumption, but the remaining two-thirds were funded through either lower precautionary saving or, more worryingly, through higher debt. This evidence highlights that precautionary and pension saving are in tension under the UK's saving system, with families having to choose between consuming today, saving for precautionary purposes, or saving for retirement. Other similar countries have also wrestled with the tension between precautionary and pension saving, but have alleviated it by allowing access to pension saving under certain conditions. For example, one common form of flexibility is to allow early pension withdrawals when people demonstrate that they're in financial hardship. And this is offered in the US, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Some other countries also see pension saving as part of a broader system of wealth accumulation, allowing withdrawals or loans for house purchases, such as in the case of New Zealand and South Africa. Other countries provide more liquidity by allowing limited flexible drawdowns or loans. For example, in the US, most savers can take a loan of up to 50% of their pension savings, up to a maximum of $50,000 for any reason without incurring a penalty so long as that money is repaid back into their pension. Then finally, from this year, the US will also be implementing changes that focus on allowing access for emergency purposes. So savers will be able to make one withdrawal per year of up to $1,000 uh, to cover emergency expenses. And they'll also be adding a separate sidecar savings account where savers can uh, build up balances of up to $2,500. Currently, the UK doesn't provide any of this flexibility and this seems unlikely to be optimal given that it forces people to having to choose having uh, people to choose between saving for precautionary purposes or for their retirement these international examples show that we can alleviate this tension and potentially solve britain's triple savings challenge by allowing greater access to pension savings but what might a policy look like in practice we're proposing a three-step reform agenda the first step will be to press ahead with the current planned reforms to auto-enrolment, so extending auto-enrolment to bring, begin at the age of 18 instead of 22, and scrapping the low earnings limit so that pension contributions are made from the first pound of earnings. Following those reforms, the government should then gradually increase the default pension contribution rate to 12%, with an additional 3% from the employer and 1% from the employee, so that both parties are contributing 6% towards the employee's pension. As previously mentioned, increasing default contribution rates without greater liquidity could worsen the tension between pension saving and precautionary saving. So therefore, we're proposing that higher pension contributions should also include a contribution into an easy access uh, sidecar savings account. 
Specifically, what we're proposing is that two percentage points of the higher default pension contribution should initially flow into a highly liquid sidecar savings account with no restrictions on its use, shown on this diagram by the yellow, uh, by the yellow box. Any balance over £1,000 um, would then roll into an employee's pension, attracting tax relief at that point. This would create an, additional, uh, an accessible pool of rainy day savings to allow people to manage those smaller cash flow shocks that they might experience. Finally, to enable families to cushion larger shocks, our third reform is to allow people to borrow from their own pension savings. Again, specifically what we are proposing is that savers should be allowed to borrow the lesser of £15,000 or 20% of their pension pot to use at their discretion, with the loan being taxed on withdrawal. Savers would only be able to access these loans on the condition that they are repaid with interest to reflect the foregone returns that they would have otherwise accumulated. Loan repayments will be taken on top of default pension contributions over a pre-agreed number of years and they would be employment contingent, so will only be paid back by those already meeting auto-enrolment criteria. So, as you can see from the right-hand side of this diagram, uh, the design of this loan system means that at the end of the loan repayment period, a person will have replenished their pension pot, paid back the foregone returns, and also made additional pension contributions on top of that. So this removes the risk that people will be depleting their pension savings by taking a loan. So, to quickly wrap up, we believe that these three reforms would provide a solution to Britain's triple savings challenge. Insufficient retirement savings will be addressed through uh, higher default uh, pension contribution rates. Insufficient rainy day savings will be addressed through the provision of an easy access sidecar savings account. And inadequate precautionary savings for large financial shocks will be addressed through the provision of loans through people's own pension savings. These reforms would boost short and medium term financial resilience today without undermining pension savings so that people can expect to still expect to retire with a good standard of living. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Molly, for an excellent example of our ambition at Resolution Foundation. Three problems all solved with one policy paper. Uh, so very much worth discussing this morning. I should have said, especially to our online participants, if you go to our uh, webpage Sly and click on Slido, you will be able to uh, put questions and upvote existing questions if you wish. I do encourage that. Uh, we're now going to hear from Steve, Steve Webb, who was a uh, Liberal Democrat MP from 1997 to 2015. Uh, of course, a very successful and distinguished pensions minister. Before that, I remember he and I were both <laughs> shadow spokesmen on work and pensions when the late Alistair <coughs> Darling was work and pensions secretary. And I always enjoyed Steve's interventions and comments then. Uh, after that, Steve uh, went first to Royal London and has since 2020, he's been with LCP. So, Steve, over to you. Uh, David, thank you very much. And Molly, thank you for that uh, superb run through a very detailed report very succinctly. Um, a few personal reflections first and then three kind of challenges, I suppose, that would have to be addressed if this were put into place. I mean, so I was, you know, I'm, I'm a reformed politician um, at the... In 2015, the electorate invited me to take what's known in the trade as a midlife career review. Um, but just thinking back to those days in, in the Department for Work and Pensions, 
short-term savings was something I gave almost no thought to. Indeed, the pensions minister at the DWP isn't even responsible for the whole of pensions. There's a treasury minister looking at FCA regulated pensions and the treasury does tax. So, so even the department that you might think was worried about short-term savings and so on, the pensions minister barely thinks about short-term savings. I think I was vaguely responsible for financial inclusion or something, but ISAs was treasury, LISAs was treasury, and so on and so on. So this risks being a fragmented area of government. So what I like about the report is you're saying, yeah, but people are people and they have holistic problems and wouldn't it be nice if we tried to solve them holistically. So it's a good challenge. And I'm slightly embarrassed on reading the report because you flag some research that says, do you know what, when people were required to put more money in a pension, they saved a bit less and they perhaps ran up more debts and they consumed a bit less. And we barely thought about that issue. Now, in my defence, um, when we started automatic enrolment, we went in at such lamentably small amounts of money, it almost didn't matter. You know, you're going in at 1% for about the first five years of qualifying earnings. So it's so marginal, I think probably we could get away with it. But it is something that gives you pause for thought, because I live still in the pensions world where it's just obvious that you should always just put more money in your pension. And we as an industry don't stop and think, well, hang on, short-term savings is really important, lumpy savings are really important. So an integrated approach is vital. And just on a personal note, in my spare time, I do some debt advice. Uh, so I work as a volunteer with Community Money Advice. And the people I meet partly are in the situation that they're in because of a lack of precautionary savings and lumpy savings. You, know, you can see how they've got in that situation. And a product like this would have helped some of them not to be in that situation. And I think the point you make about the link with mental health is very striking. I would say the large majority of the people I've sat with have got some sort of mental health challenge which either led to the financial problem but absolutely the other way around the financial pressure they are under was a real mental health pressure so I think that's a, a very important link. It, one kind of reservation about all of this is the whole question about complexity. Um, in a sense you could say well what you're proposing is, is simpler than the world we live in because you've got one product Instead of having a pension here and an ISA here and a license there and all the, you know, and so on, <clears throat> you are trying to do it, excuse me, <clears throat> you are trying to do it all in one product. But dealing in the world where you try and communicate about pensions to people, I'm aware just how difficult that is, even when the product is just a pot of money that's grown and invested. You know, I remember at Royal London, we did some surveying of young people from our customer base and about halfway through the interviews, we had to intervene because the respondents had told us that they didn't have a pension. And actually, we knew they had a pension because they had a pension with us. But they simply hadn't registered through automatic. They were so inert, if you like, they didn't even know they got a pension. If you then say, well, we've got this pot on the side for this, and then you can dip into that bid up to this limit, repayable with interest and so on. It's doable, but I wouldn't underestimate the complexity challenge of communicating this. And then just very briefly, David, if I may, three kind of challenges, questions. One is the repayment mechanism. You, you say earnings-related repayment mechanisms. But of course, in the horribly fragmented pensions world we have, the pension pot you're taking the money out of may not be the pension pot you're currently saving into. So you start a new job, your big pension pot's in job A, you're in job B. So the contributions that have been collected through your pay packet are going into pension B. But if you've borrowed from pot A, you need the money to go back to pot A, What's the mechanism for that? So, so if we had a single pot, you know, a single 401k or something, that's an awful lot easier than when I've got five past pensions and I might want to borrow from three of them. And, you know, so I think 
imposing this on a simple world would be lovely. Imposing it on the messy world, it's kind of, I wouldn't start from here kind of thing. Um, I'm sure these things are fixable, but I think that would be a practical challenge. The second is the kind of macroeconomic impact of all of this, because part of the report says we have an investment crisis in Britain. What we need is more saving, more money, long-term investment in pensions will be good for the economy, i.e. if we saved more, it would be good for the economy and you know where I'm going with this, elsewhere in the report you say, do you know what, in America when the economy was in the doldrums we had this thing and everybody raided their pensions and they spent like there was no tomorrow and that was great because it boosted the economy. Well, I suppose both of those things could be true at the same time, but you know, is it short term, is it long term? So we would just need to think, you know, the paradox of thrift, you know, if we all save more and we consume less and the economy is smaller, do we end up just with less savings as well? So what's the macro impact we need to think through? And then finally, I was thinking about the, the, the investment strategy of the pension funds we're talking about. Because the government wants everybody to lock up their DC pension investments for the long term and illiquid and all the rest of it. But of course, if everyone can borrow from their pension, albeit you know, a fifth or whatever, a sixth or whatever the number was, it's not that big. But it could be cyclical. So although on any given day there might not be that many people up to it, you flag in the report that, you know, Let's hope we don't have another pandemic, but you know, a, a, a housing market crisis, a downturn, something like that. And suddenly everybody thinks it's a good idea to raise their pensions at the same point. And all these illiquid investments don't look very good. So would that mean DC schemes holding more liquid cash than they currently do? And would that mean poorer returns? So where's the balance on that? I think all of these things are surmountable, kind of second order issues. So, you know, would love to see this taken further greatly built on, on Joe's work that I'm sure she'll talk about in a moment, the sort of specifically the sidecar and the very short-term savings, but you've brought in this kind of lumpier, chunkier problem in one single neat solution. So um, great report and I hope it will be studied in the corridors of power by this government and particularly the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much Steve and, uh, and a vivid reminder there of the case for a single pension pot and some of the uh, difficulties created by multiple smaller pots. Um, well, we're now going to hear from Joe Phillips, Director of Research and Innovation at Nest Insight, and uh, I have to say who has really made an important contribution why providing evidence about behaviour in these different models has been long. I can remember from the debate Steve and I used to participate in, people saying, oh, you should have compulsory pension savings, and then asking, well, hang on, what if they borrow money to put it into this compulsory pot? But those were just theoretical issues. Now we've got evidence as to how people do balance out between dissaving in other forms or uh, changing the pattern of their savings instruments thanks to the kind of work that Joe has been promoting. So thank you very much for joining us. Over to you. Thank you, David, and thank you to the Resolution Foundation uh, for having me here today. So Molly and the team have asked me to focus mainly on the rainy day sidecar savings part of their proposals, which which is where a lot of Nest Insights work has been in recent years. We're a public benefit research and innovation centre, so everything we do, we, we share and, and we hope that it provides a, a solid evidence base um, for policymaking and for industry decision makers. Um, we've, we've been running a programme of research looking at how to build financial resilience by supporting people to build emergency savings alongside retirement savings for a number of years now. And the evidence that I'm going to talk about is from real world trials. So we've been looking at behavioural data, as David says, what people actually do. And we've also been asking them um, how they feel about that, how they're using the money. And all of that data has been really robustly analysed. Um, we've worked with partners at Harvard and Yale throughout. 
there have been many employers, providers and funders involved and they've really been pioneers. You know, there are employers who have um, piloted new approaches to savings with their employees um, so that the rest of us can learn from that experience. Like the Resolution Foundation, Nest Insight focuses on low and moderate paid workers. So the workers who have been covered by the trials, and there's over 150,000 workers covered now, are largely in frontline work like retail, care work, recycling and recovery, call centres. So what do we mean when we talk about rainy day or emergency savings? I think it's really important to describe this because I think it's a different kind of saving than um, the sort of uh, big balance saving that sometimes we're talking about. So we're talking about instantly accessible liquid savings that are partitioned to the side of day-to-day -day money that can be accessed really easily when you need them. If you can't access them easily, they don't work for the, for the job that they're designed to do. It's a buffer that's there if you need it to deal with an unexpected financial shock, like uh, most recently bigger electric and gas bills, car failing its MOT, needing to pay for a school trip. It's also importantly for managing cash flow and this can mean that people access those savings quite frequently. So for example dealing with periods of extra costs like school holidays when you might have a, a, a bigger food bill. Managing variable income, that's a really important thing here. Variable income exposes people um, to uh, more uncertainty and, and more need to have a buffer. And also bumpy expenses. So we've seen people using their savings for things like a quarterly sa service charge, knowing that they've got some money for, for the bumpy months. Um, I've been asked, is, is this real? Is this a real thing? Um, wh why don't people just borrow? And I think you know that's really important to, to get to the heart of um, what we're talking about here. Not everyone has money to spare as a cushion within a month. Um, not everyone has access to an overdraft, a credit card, friends and family to borrow from. And if you don't have those options, not having at least a few hundred pounds in savings can be really harmful. It can lead people to turn to high cost credit or even illegal lending, to get into bill arrears, to cut back on essentials, you know, eating less, um, not using the heating. And knowing that you're exposed, that you could at any moment be hit by these kind of events and you don't have the resilience to cope that can be really stressful and debilitating. We've seen in the report that it can impact mental health, it can impact physical health, it can really undermine people's self-confidence. And we also know that those managing against this kind of scarcity and uncertainty are using up so much mental bandwidth, managing and, and sort of coping with this, that their cognitive ability and their capacity for decision-making and planning ahead to think about things like money for retirement is reduced. So the opportunity here when we think about helping people to build that savings buffer is huge. If people are supported to get started with saving, it boosts their financial resilience, it reduces problem debt, but it also gives a really strong foundation for broader positive impact, better mental health, higher productivity at work, people being better able to plan for the future, including being a strong predictor of um, people being able to save more money for retirement. This is not about an abstract balance or a notion of sort of asset building. You can draw a line through, and, and we can see this in, in various people's data, to suicide reduction, escape from domestic abuse, social mobility. Um, one employer talks about reducing accidents at work because people are able to be present and, and not distracted by money worries. Um, 
and and I've I've sort of been lucky enough to speak to people who have built savings for the first time um, reasonably frequently through the past few years and seen that it can have a really profound impact on people's lives, a greater feeling of being in control. People talk about being empowered. They talk about greater peace of mind. So it's really important and the opportunity is huge, but it has been quite a tough problem to crack. Um, not having savings tends to be a persistent rather than a temporary problem. People who don't have savings this year are the same people who didn't have savings in, in previous years. And that, that's the fact that people don't have savings is not because it's not salient to them. We see consistently in our surveys that people think emergency savings are important. People want to save, they know they need to save. And I think that's why incentives and education programmes haven't worked as well as the people designing them might have wanted them to. Um, I think it's really important to recognise this is something that people already want to do. And what we see is that incentives tend to benefit um, people who are active, people who are maximisers. Um, so uh, I saw that the Help to Save programme, that the place that people were most likely to have heard about it is Money Saving Expert. You know, there's a certain kind of person who is trying to maximise their money and has the sort of capacity to do that. And that's who those kind of programmes reach. Um, the, we see sort of people moving existing assets around rather than them, them making new saving happen. So in our pilots, we focused really on overcoming behavioural barriers and designing around people's psychology and context. And um, there's three design features that have worked really well that I want to draw attention to because they, they sort of are part of um, the team's proposals. And, and I want to make the point that th these are tried and tested, that we've seen them work in the real world already. So the first is an opt-out approach. Um, this hasn't been the case in all of our trials, but, but in uh, several of our trials, we've taken an approach where um, if you do nothing, you start saving. And it's if you don't want to start saving that you have to take an action. It's really important this preserves individual choice. Um, there's no mandating of saving, but we've just flipped the default. And we've seen really striking results. So where workplace saving schemes are in place and where employees have to actively sign up to save, even though the coverage is there, participation is, tends to be really low, usually below 5% of eligible employees saving. But when employees are supported to save via an opt-out approach, we've seen participation boosted by around 50 percentage points. Um, that's massive compared to other savings interventions. We see up to 7 in 10 employees start saving when it's made easier for them to get started. And it's really important that this approach is inclusive. It's reaching the people who most need the support. So around four in 10 of those savers are people who had no savings beforehand. It's driving new saving. It's also really popular. Over nine in 10 employees were in favor or felt neutral about it. So the opt-out approach really works in this context. Um, secondly, saving via payroll is really powerful. Um, money's put into savings automatically and so we see people who have struggled to save previously saving really persistently and because the money's moved into savings before people get their take-home pay people say that they find it much easier to save they don't feel the loss of it and they know it's just partitioned to the side and they can get to it if they need it and then the third feature is the rollover to pension saving which we explored in our sidecar trial um, we designed that so that whenever savers hit their accessible savings target, any additional savings went into their workplace pension. And people really liked this pre-commitment device. They knew that they would only save more for retirement when they had some resilience for today in place. And this allowed them to commit to save more in future. And over time, it also led to some people making really meaningful additional pension contributions because it was made easy for them to do so because everything was all in one place. So... 
we know what works, um, but it needs system level support to scale. We don't have coverage, most employers don't have a workplace savings scheme and even where there is something in place, participation is low because of the behavioural barriers to getting started. So the proposal in this report to build an accessible liquid saving sidecar pot alongside workplace pension saving in auto enrolment could be a massive win. It could really drive a step change in savings behaviour in the UK. It would make saving the default unless you opt out. It would help people to save persistently and it would join up shorter term saving and retirement saving, reducing the tension between the two. Um, it also goes some way to providing a valuable safety valve for balancing the different needs people have at different income levels. If we're going to increase minimum default contribution levels, clearly that helps some people who need to to save more for retirement, but we also need to think about people on lower incomes for whom it might actually make sense to prioritise today's urgent needs when thinking about how to target any additional money. So just a couple of thoughts to close um, on developing the proposal. Um, I guess I, I sort of really feel that the emergency savings sidecar proposal has been rigorously piloted and tested um, and making that happen could make a real difference. Clearly there are some complexities and some other things to think about and work through when we think about access to pensions and, and borrowing against pensions. But the sidecar part of this, um, I, I think, you know, is, is relatively simple and would would be a big win. Um, we need to think though about who's not covered. So if we use the auto enrolment system as the most powerful touch point we have for reaching people, um, we need to remember that um, people have opted out and around one in nine employees earn under £10,000. And those are probably the people who um, would most benefit from support to build emergency savings. So is there a way that we could extend it beyond those who are in for, for the workplace pension saving? And I think although, you know, this report really clearly says that the incentives are not working well for saving, we know that using that money and thinking about it in a different way to think about boosts and subsidies really could support people. So that cash flow management savings behaviour that I described means that people are accessing their savings frequently and they're unlikely to build the buffer balance. Could we take, um, you know, potentially the money that was put against help to save and instead of seeing it as an incentive, see it as a boost to help people who most struggle to do so to build a buffer? And perhaps we should think about whether, at least for some people, there's a case for money saved through auto enrolment into savings, benefiting from tax relief at that point rather than only when it goes into a pension. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Molly, and thank you, uh, Joe, and thank you for that endorsement of the proposals uh, in Molly's paper. Um, and it does show, I mean, in, your, in the research you've done, does show the power of the whole nudge device. And, of course, way back when it was called, I think, libertarian paternalism, before it even got brilliantly rebranded, pensions and savings was always the most powerful area that it applied to. However, there's a strand of issues, and I'm going to start, actually, by putting this to you. To you, Joe, that the um, from uh, coming in online, one in it's basically concerned about complexity and comprehension. So, one <coughs> question: Could you make this reform simpler and easier for people to understand? Uh, and the uh, another comment has come in: What about people who don't have poor, who have poor financial understanding um, of both their current and future needs? How can we better educate workers? Should it all just be completely compulsory? So um, are you, in the research you've done, do you think our model 
aiming to solve three different problems has ended up being too complicated for people to understand? Is that a problem? And if so, what do you do about it? I think there's, there's probably two kinds of complexity. There's complexity under the bonnet and there's complexity in presentation. I think those of us who are thinking about and designing uh, around people's needs to try and make things work better need you know perhaps some complexity is needed there and perhaps we can tolerate it I don't think that means that it feels complex on the other side um, I, th I think there's an opportunity here you know we worry that people aren't engaged enough with their pension saving to some extent do I need to engage that much with it it's for way in the future it's for decades ahead mm. but if attached to that, I have something that I'm using really frequently, that I'm accessing, that I know is there. I think there are opportunities there for engagement with retirement saving through joining those things up. Um, I often get asked about education and from the people I speak to, I don't think that's the problem. People want to save, they know they need to save, they talk about saving for today and for retirement. Um, I think the difficulty is getting started with that when you are firefighting today. And so supporting people behaviourally to get started, to get on an even foundation, then potentially frees up a bit of headspace to sort of think and plan for the future. Um, but I think there's, there's a danger in thinking that we can educate our way out of right. the issue. Steve, your comments on that, and then I'll come to, to Molly. Anything you'd like to add? You made the, the point earlier. <coughs> Yeah, I suppose there's always an issue about guidance and advice and all that kind of stuff just lurking a bit. So I am thinking about raiding my pension for a house deposit or something like that. Is that a better strategy than something else or not for now? It may be this replaces everything else, but suppose lifetime ISAs are available over here and I can get, you know, a top up and instant access anyway whereas if I take for my pension I have to pay it back with interest so we, how do I weigh those nobody's going to give me financial advice at these sorts of income levels so who's going to give me the guidance and how you know so so I think again trying to set up the default structures and the nudges and all the rest of it so that it's the right answer for most people most of the time I, I entirely take Joe's point that we can be really really clever under the bonnet but what the punters see has got to be so straightforward I think yeah. um, yeah. Molly, anything you want to add on that? No, I think I'd agree with both of those um, points made. I think the fact that this is an auto-enrolled product um, means that it is simpler for people than having to choose, you know, what's the right ISA? Should I be putting it into a savings account? Should I be locking it away to get a better interest rate? I think it just um, takes all those decisions out of it and would help um, the majority of people. It might not be right for everyone, but it would help um, the majority. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and although we've gone through all the, the some key technical issues. It is possible, and we do envisage hiding the wiring. It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to look so complicated to a, an individual person participating in it. Now, I'm going to put up a polling question, and then, while you reflect on the polling, take some questions and comments from people here physically with it, with us. Um, the uh, uh, We have a multiple-choice polling question. Where would you put your marginal savings pound? Would you, would you go for an easy access savings account, a long-term savings product, private, a classic private pension? And we will come back in a moment to it when I, we've had uh, time for people to reflect and answer that. But meanwhile, let's just see if here at Res physically there are people who wish to put a comment 
or question to our panellists. Oh, right. Yep, we'll take a couple. Let's start here. Yes. Oh, sorry. The, sorry, we have to be patient. The microphone has gone to the back. We'll start at the back and then we'll come to you. Yep. Uh, sorry, yep. No. Yes, I think. <laughs> yes, the gentleman is hand. Hello, Anthony Earnshaw from Schroders. Thanks for the report. It's super interesting and the panel discussion. A lot of it focuses on what the individual can do to save more, but one of the fundamental problems is they don't have any money to save. Especially in the, live, the cost of living crisis, have you th given any thought to guess what the corporates or the government can do to help this? I know the government also is probably in the cost of living crisis too, but w what else can help? Right, what else? And let's also at the same time collect comment at the front. It's great to have a distinguished oh. macroeconomist also as a micro microphone operator. That's how we function <laughs> at Red. Yes, yes over uh, to you. Right. Donald Hirsch, um, advisor of the Financial Fairness Trust. Um, I mean, it's, it relates to the last question. I mean, it's, it's obviously a great set of proposals, but the underlying difficulty, which I think is recognised in the report, is people don't have enough money and that there's a tension between um, spending today and saving in these different ways. But there's a particular um, part of this, which I, I, I fear may, this may come out, come out most, which is the last part of the proposals, which is the, set the borrowing against your, your pension fund. And, and as I understand it, compulsory repayments thereafter um, with interest. So how do you avoid that creating a sort of burden around people's necks, which, which they really just can't afford, and then they end up going to debt in different ways? Yes, and actually, thank you very much, Don. And that I'm at the same time going to call up one further online question, which is very much in this territory. Um, how realistic uh, that uh, we're then expecting people who've taken out a loan uh, to can pay back in at the default rate plus the loan repayment into the pension. So are these conditions too onerous and difficult? We've got to get people to save more. Steve, do you want to set the ball rolling? Yeah, I mean, on that one, I guess it is an earnings-related repayment, isn't it? So you're not in this thing unless you're in the auto-enrollment population. So anyone on less than 10,000 who's absolutely on the breadline or out of work isn't in this regime. So I suppose the people who really, really haven't got something to rub together Many of them aren't in this thing to begin with. So this is probably the, slightly the next group up. Um, and then you are only paying back proportionate to what you can afford. So I think you can, you can tailor that. Um, I guess, it, I mean, Joe will be closer to this than me, but I think there is this slight sense of people even on a, you know, it's often said, you know, there's a sort of newspaper stereotype of a feckless single mum. You meet a single mum who's budgeting, who knows where every penny's going, who's being incredibly financially astute. And actually, I think a lot of the folk we're talking about are very focused on managing money. And if there's a bit of pre-saving going on that they can dip into when they need, if that results in a little bit less consumption, then overall, there's probably more margin than there was before. And they've still, you know, they're still not over-saving because they... They've got the emergency cash, but if if they're budgeting on that number in the bottom right-hand corner of the pay slip, and it's just that little bit lower, and they just squeeze, you know, I mean, without being flippant, you know, they go to little instead of wherever. You know, it's that those kind of marginal choices might still mean they're better off overall. But I mean, you know, I don't want to be flippant about that. Yeah, thanks, uh, Joe. Um, I think the questions recognise. So the reports very much about things being interconnected. Yeah. 
outside of what's talked about in the report, I think we need to think about the other things that are intertwined. So yes, people need livable wages, people need um, work conditions with predictable hours and, and predictable pay. Elsewhere, the Resolution Foundation has called for better sick pay, um, you know, access to, to affordable housing. All of these things are, are sort of also part of the picture. So the question, you know, what, what could government do, I think, has to think about how do we uh, make sure that people have those foundations. Um, I think it's really important that the money is instantly accessible and where that's been the case we've seen people saving who perhaps we might have made an assumption would not find that affordable because the version of saving that is making a difference to them is putting some money aside and then using it build, access, rebuild. Um, but also I think to my earlier point for people who really can't build a balance because the calls on money today are so frequent and so great then I think you know there is a question about whether we use some of the money that has previously been used you know in, in different kinds of incentives to boost that to give people a savings buffer and there are examples um, to the question about kind of industry and employers of, of employers doing that in various schemes where they match um, uh, emergency savings that are made by individuals up to a certain point to give that a boost to make it enough of a buffer to be useful. Yeah, and look, this is something we're very aware of at Resolution Foundation. That after all, we talk about the cost of living crisis. We're very focused on uh, living standards of less affluent half of the population who are struggling to make ends meet. So saying save more and perhaps consume less is a tough message. But Molly, do you want to set out our, our thinking on that? Um, yeah, so just um, on the the point about the loan being employment contingent, um, as Steve mentioned, people would only be paying that back if they're earning over £10,000. Um, and people would actually be able to opt out of the default pension contributions if they felt that it was no longer affordable to make the loan repayments at, on top of the default um, contributions. So we imagine that's how people would manage their money if they were really squeezed. There's also evidence from the US that... Um, people do tend to save a little bit less from in, in their default um, contributions. I think they reduce it by one, their uh, contributions by one percentage point. Um, so they're still making contributions to their pension, but um, at a lower level. And even so, this would mean that people would still retire with um, without a depleted pension pot. Um, on the point about um, sort of choosing between consuming today, um, saving for precautionary purposes and pension saving. I think it is a really uh, difficult tension that people have to manage, especially in a world with sort of low income growth or no income growth. So, I mean, the thing that government could do is uh, focus on getting economic growth and sort of um, income growth, and that would alleviate some of this tension and free up some money for people to sort of save where they, um, where it would bring them the most benefit. And of course, separately, the Resolution Foundation, our intergenerational commission, did say, actually, as for younger people, acquiring capital is so difficult, building up a pot of savings or getting started on the housing ladder, we did advocate that at about the age of 30, there should be a capital grant of £10,000 for them to use for certain specified purposes. And you could argue that the simplest way of delivering the grant would be into a system like this, which has the kind of flexibility we are after. Um, I'm going to collect a, another question here, and then we're going to get the poll result, yeah? Thank you. Uh, Craig Beaumont from the Federation of Small Businesses. I was wondering, Molly, have you, do, have you done any economic impact on uh, what happens when you make employment more expensive as a result of these changes? 
uh, we estimate and we've had some officials confirm that the average cost of just changing the lower earnings limit would, would have an average cost of £1,000, for example. So you know, by reducing the number of jobs in the economy, did you, did you work out what that would actually happen as a result? Yeah, so we didn't um, do any detailed sort of economic impact, but we are assuming that higher default contribution rates would eventually in the long term flow into sort of lower earning, uh, lower wages for people. Um, and then that brings us back to the sort of consumption smoothing effect. So um, you want people to consume less today to have a higher standard of living in retirement um, or a decent standard of living in retirement. So, um, yeah, by having, having lower earnings, you're kind of forcing that consumption smoothing throughout the lifetime. Let's now get an, uh, let's see what the answer is on the polling question about uh, where people uh, would save, um, where you would put your marginal savings pound, uh, easy access savings account, uh, <laughs> over 50%. That does show there is a kind of appetite for the kind of flexibility we are uh, calling for in our report. Now, there's some more, a lot more questions come in online. Um, uh, and I, let's choose uh, some of them. There's a, uh, although we're focusing on pensions today, we should also remember housing and the interaction with housing and then we're talking about saving in this format and consumption the other issue is what people's housing costs are and if they're trying to save up to buy a house or people might want to reflect if there are any trade-offs between the two assets that people build up during their lives their house and their pension um the the uh there's an interesting particular thought on credit unions, whether as we're looking for user-friendly mechanisms, whether the credit unions, whether credit unions can um, help out, and um, there's then uh, thinking of Steve's comment at the end of his intervention. <laughs> what about a cross-party consensus? On this, what is the likely um, range of opinions across the political parties? So three specific questions. Um, let's start with you, Jo. Um, I'm going to start with the credit union question. Um, so in one of our trials, we've worked with the credit union Transave UK. Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that credit unions have been offering payroll savings for a long time. And for a long time, they've been the only organisations doing that. I think it's also worth um, thinking about the, the parts of the credit union model that, that, that work really well around workplace savings. So I quite often get asked questions like, what's the interest rate on the savings account? Um, I think we need a, a broader definition of uh, what good value is to workers in workplace savings schemes. Uh, credit unions often offer things like um, a death in service benefit, access to um, affordable lending and, and all of those things can be really relevant um, so we've seen in in the in the trial where more people have started saving via the opt-out approach we also <coughs> see um, that they're accessing affordable lending via the credit union because they know it's there and they're aware of it because they're saving with the credit union so i absolutely think we should be learning from credit unions and thinking about how to make sure that they are part of 
the model in future because of their great understanding um, of meeting the needs of particularly low and moderate income workers. Um, I think on housing, um, you know, it, it, it's another example of, of needing to think in a more connected way. Um, I think for too long we've based assumptions about adequacy in retirement um, around just the income part of that without thinking about housing costs. And clearly if you get to retirement as a homeowner, then your retirement savings money is gonna go much further than if you don't. I think the other aspect of housing that's important here is, is around the previous question about affordability. So, um, for example, one of the people we spoke to had recently moved from a private rental and had been able to get a social rental and that had freed up enough income for them to be able to save. So thinking about affordability of housing is very much connected. Yeah, absolutely. I can remember we had a separate event here a while back on, on long-term fiscal trends and housing. And I can remember the Treasury official here asking what the implications of the change in tenure were for long-term expansion. And I said, the um, we said the benefits bill, if you do not have uh, a large proportion of the older generation owner-occupiers, is potentially very high indeed. And you, Steve, you've been thinking about this. Mm. What constitutes savings adequacy? How, what's your view on housing? Absolutely. Again, I mean, you know, if you cut me down the middle like Blackpool Rock, it'll say pensions, pensions all the way. But I have kids in their 20s and I struggle to say to them, the next time you get a pay rise, put it in the pension because I absolutely don't want them to be renters in retirement because it blows all the calculations out of the window. And so maybe the pensions world needs to start recognising that in your 20s and early 30s, getting that deposit and so on is, is a bigger priority. So I like the aspect of the Resolution Foundation model, which is pleasingly unprescriptive. I mean, obviously, lots of these global solutions are linked to house deposit, but I just kind of like the idea that the state doesn't have an approved list of things you can spend your money on kind of thing, but it's pretty obvious that a housing deposit is going to be quite high up that list. And that is a form of retirement saving, you know, and we should be kind of chilled about that. So, so we absolutely have to think of those two things together, I think, which this product does. Just on the, the cross-party consensus one, I think everybody's in favour of cross-party consensus until they get into power. Um, and if you kind of imagine you're the Labour Party and you've been out of office for 14 years and you finally get somewhere near the levers of power and then are you about to say, but you know what, we'll, let, we'll all just kind of agree on stuff. You think, oh, actually we get to decide. And I guess I, I, what I would say is there's a set of things in pensions that can be non-part. There's nothing terribly ideological about this, is there? There's nothing that a Labour government or a Conservative government or a coalition would find ideologically offensive. I mean, you might be more prescriptive about what you do with the money or something, but this, could, this sort of thing could survive change of government just as automatic enrolment did. So in a way, you don't need a commission. You know, just build the evidence base as you've done, Joe, make the argument, just get these. And before you know it, this sort of thing will become received wisdom, almost whoever's in charge, I think. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. And, we, and the auto-enrollment is a great example. And, and yeah. you and I, we were um, advocates, and it's gone through a series of different political dispensations. And I have to say, uh, Guy Opperman, as pensions minister, was very interested in this kind of model. And indeed, um, Joe was saying earlier, so he, uh, before we started, that you know, he had actually was one of the people whose interest in the side got led to some of the research which we are now drawing on. So it could be cross-party. Molly, any observations on those three things? Um, I think just on the housing uh, point, we... Um did our intergenerational audit last year, which included some model of home ownership for different generations, and we found that 
even under really favourable conditions, millennials are not going to catch up um, to the home ownership levels seen by the baby boomer cohort. So I think that suggests that um, many more people will be in the private rented sector in retirement. So, you know, those um, target replacement rates and those um, PLSA um, uh, retirement benchmarks are actually potentially too low um, for some for those people in particular. So I think this policy of sort of raising retirement, um, uh, raising savings for retirement is, I think, really important, particularly for those that um, won't be homeowners. In Thank you very much, Molly, for the authentic voice of the millennial, which has to be heard. Quite right. <laughs> Quite right. Um, now, we will, I'll collect, um, just, uh, I'm going to collect, no, I know what. First of all, let's do the second poll. We must put that up to give people time to consider their answer um, for what you would use your new flexible pension pot uh, loans for. Unemployment, house insurance, IVF. Uh, divorce, the Lamborghini, the Steve Webb Memorial option. So, uh, yeah, so do think about your answers to that. And while you are thinking of your answers to that, I'm going to take, we've got a lot of questions online. I'm going to um, uh, flick through. There are several, and don't feel our panelists must feel obliged to uh, answer every one. Um, but one important point that's come up is... Um, we haven't actually talked about what should the funds should be invested in. Do people have any uh, view about how that can be, what, how, how to get good long-term returns and what fees uh, should be uh, charged? Then secondly, a very interesting question, of course, some people have been talking about a rather classic view of the employer and everything. What about people in the cash-based economy? Is the anything to be done um, about that. There's another question about um, financial advice. We've been talking about financial advice. Is this still over-regulated? Are the requirements for financial advice too demanding? Could some of them be um, removed? And um, then a sort of question, a realistic question. Simply, how, how much is this big lifetime event issue? How significant is it? Is it a problem that many people face? So I've given you a, solid, a slightly sort of random scattergun, but those are some of the questions. And I don't feel obliged to answer everyone, but Joe, do you want to start on those? And then I'll go to Molly and Steve. I think perhaps just on the how are the savings invested and what are the fees question. Um, I don't know which part of this, the savings that the person asking the question is talking about, but I think when it comes to the emergency savings it's really important that they are held in cash and instantly accessible because that's the only way that they will work to help people manage for um, bumpy expenses and, and things like lower than expected income um, in all the trials the um, savings pots have been no fee and instant access cash accounts and I think it's really important that we preserve that if we're thinking about emergency savings right Thank you. Um, Molly, any of those questions you particularly want to pick up on? Um, yeah, so this last question here on how, um, how big a deal is um, saving for big life events. So in the report, we had some figures on the number of people that become unemployed every three months is around 300,000. So, I mean, it is a big deal for those people. Um, as we showed in the presentation, they can face a really substantial income loss from one year to the next. I think um, 
this sort of big life events, it was um, a big part of our thinking for providing loans rather than um, financial hardship withdrawals because um, by allowing a loan and no restrictions on its on its use, you are able to you know capture lots of different type of uh, big life events that people might um, experience. So I mentioned unemployment and family breakdown in the in the presentation, but there's also things like um, bereavement, which you know lots of people will face. So I think it is a big deal, and we found that you know lots of people are quite um, uh, ill prepared for those big shocks. Thank you. And, and Stephen, do you want particularly to comment on the regulation issue? Mm -hmm. you, and going back to your very interesting point at the beginning about what the pensions ministry was actually responsible for and financial regulation being in the Treasury. Did mm -hmm. you have any, tell us how you got on in your discussions of financial regulation with your Treasury okay. colleagues? Yeah, I, I mean, so the, the questioner was asking about advice on pension transfers and that that specific rule is about taking a quotes gold-plated final salary type pension and putting it in a pot of money pension. You can see why there's a set of rules around that and why even with those rules there have been scandals and so on. So, so whether the threshold's in the right place, it probably isn't. I mean, it's required at £30,000 worth of pension. That's probably too low. Uh, but some protection where people have got really valuable types of pension, they're giving them up, I think is important. But most modern pensions are not like that. Most of them are just kind of pot of money pensions. There's no requirement to take advice to bring them together. Arguably, it's under regulated, funnily enough, at the moment. Um, I hesitate to say that, David, in, in your presence, but you know, <laughs> funny enough, there are people moving pensions around the system to people who've got the best TV adverts, the best PR. Mm, you look at what they're paying, where they end up, and it's more than they were paying where they were before, and it's not obvious. So actually, funny enough, with pensions dashboards due to come in a couple of years' time, there's going to be billions of pounds sloshing around the financial system in the pensions world. We may need more safeguards, not less, I think, on that point. Just on the final question about how big a deal, it's a good challenge. You know, why do you set up all this, yeah. this infrastructure for what? I mean, the house deposit's fundamental to all of this, and so I think having that integrated in one product is good. Uh, Molly mentioned um, bereavement, you know, the bereavement benefit system, because in a sense, a lot of this stuff you wouldn't need if we had a comprehensive safety, safety net, and we, we just don't. So bereavement benefits, you get a lump sum of cash essentially for the funeral and a maximum of 18 months of money, and that's it, even if you've got kids. So, so actually bereavement shocks being able to dip in here, and, and although divorce was on a slightly slip, flippant thing, if you imagine the financial impact of divorce, trying to perhaps set up a new home or you know, support the kids with one less wage coming in, so you know, a lot of stuff happens to a lot of people. So that flexibility without being too prescriptive about here's the state approved list of things you can do with the money seems to be a good thing. Thank you. Uh, and Joe, you shouldn't forget the, the cash economy yeah. question. Just any, anything from your research, any angle, any views on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth recognising that some people are saving in cash. Um, we had uh, one person who had saved via payroll um, and left the employer um, and she she thought that to keep saving in that account she would have to go into the center of the city kind of go into a bank meet with, with, with the bank person and so she'd reverted to a, a kind of jar that she had for, for saving money from things like tips um, I think as far as possible we should make it easy for people to build their savings in ways that work for them and so 
uh, ideally people would be able to add their own money in in some way you know once you've created a savings account for people and we know that one of the barriers to saving is people not opening savings accounts sort of not not getting to that point I think ideally you know even if there's the a thousand pounds and then roll over into pension saving it'd be great if people could continue to build that savings pot and, and that's where I think supporting people who are getting money in cash and using cash and saving cash to perhaps add in on top of that would be really valuable. Yeah, thank you very much. Right, let's now see the answer that we got to the poll question. And I'm going to invite, let's see how well the IVF did. <laughs> not, it's behind Lamborghinis. percent. People are out of touch with today's friends. Right, okay. House purchase, as we've seen, coming in very strongly. Um, I'm going to invite panellists, if they want to make any comments on that, to do so. But there's one, there's one very germane question that I'd just like to put up as well. Because, of course, we've got in our report the 12% proposal. Uh, and going up to 12%, 6 plus 6 is our kind of model. Quite rightly, someone is saying, is that right? Is it indeed, is it oversaving, especially for people on, on low incomes? And I think focusing, because there's a general shared view that the auto-enrolment figure should go up, it'll be very interesting to hear from all of our panellists, and let's start with Molly, on where they think they can get to. And they might also want to comment on things like bring it down to 18 as well, but Molly. Um, yeah, so this is something we wrestled with internally as to whether 12% is the right level. Obviously, rates of return have improved um, significantly since uh, pre-pandemic. So uh, we did some modeling and suggest that um, actually 12% would, if these rates, um, persisted then you would get um, quite a high replacement rate in retirement but the thing is no one knows the sort of long-term path of um, interest rates and rates of return so I think saving at 12% gives people that protection from periods of where interest rates might be lower and you're not getting very favorable returns on your pension savings. Um, in terms of low-income people I think I mean, it is a risk that they are oversaving at 12%. Um, we were talking about this earlier. There's this sort of U shape where um, the sort of middle income uh, middle income people are undersaving for their pension. So it is really difficult to set the default rate at the right level for everyone. Um, and the advantage of this policy of um, allowing a sidecar savings um, uh, account allows people to be able to sort of uh, opt down their contribution um, technically by you know constantly sort of raiding their sidecar if they needed to and so you'd only actually be contributing at 10% so it gives a bit of flexibility there. Yeah absolutely yes and it, it's uh, it's 12% plus our extra flexibilities. Um, Joe, what would your view be on the on the 12% question? I think um the, the sort of U-shaped curve that Molly describes is really important for us to think about. Up until now, auto-enrolment uh, minimum contribution levels have been a sort of one-size-fits-all within the kind of eligibility criteria. Um, we held a roundtable recently and I, I was sort of really interested to hear how many people within the pensions industry were starting to think perhaps we need to build, tolerate a bit more complexity, perhaps we need to think a little bit more about people at, at different ends of the income spectrum. Um, I think it 
would merit further investigation. Um, you know, we, the report and, and, and kind of lots of work talks about median levels, I think understanding for lower income savers, you know, is there a risk of oversaving and how, how might you deal with that? Are there different contribution levels for a lower income level? The opt-down proposal, I think, is attractive. Um, I think as well we need to be careful um, to, to the kind of questions about what happens to wages, that we don't depress wages for everybody, including those who aren't in. You know, th that seems unfair. And so are there ways that um, people who perhaps opt out of the pension saving part of this because of affordability still benefit from employer contributions in some shape or form into potentially accessible savings? Um, so I, I don't think I'm the right person to model is 12% the kind of right contribution level, but I think we do need to think about lower earners and, and kind of yeah. more vulnerable workers. I think a note of caution about people on, with lower earnings in 12. Thank you. And Steve, what's your, what, where do you want to get it to? Yeah, I, I wonder if the answer is that you start at 12 when you start your working life with the flexibilities that Molly's described. So you then, some of that short-term cash, some of that's potentially housing deposit as well. So it's like all of your savings is, is funded by 12, of which you're paying four and a half or whatever it is, and the government's paying a bit and the employer's paying half. And then we step up, maybe when you're 35. Or, or, or something like that. And so, so we have this period where you kind of establish the savings habit, you try and get your housing deposit, you establish that you're not going to be a renter in retirement, great stuff. Your career's perhaps established, and obviously you know, this is presuming all sorts of things about jobs and careers. And then at 35, we have some sort of auto-escalation. So you know, when you get a pay rise beyond 35, you nudge up to you know, 12 and a half, 13, four, whatever the number needs to be. But I think if you said, say we thought 15 was kind of the right answer, I think expecting 18-year-olds to go in at 15 is not on. So we probably start at something like 12 with flexibility and then step up probably in your mid-30s, something like that. Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Now, we are just in the last few minutes. I'm going to ask our panellists to wind up. I'm going to put one last question to help focus their final remarks, which is the assertion, which I don't immediately... Uh, it sounds about right, but it's... Uh, I don't... This um, uh, Craig Beaumont is saying it's taken Australia 31 years to get this far. Um, so just, I think it'd be interesting to hear from all of our panelists, just sketch out the route from kind of here to there. And just imagine that, uh, either that there were a change of government, but they weren't being totally chauvinistic about it. What are the first steps? If you are an incoming pensions minister of whatever political party, what are the first steps you might be encouraged to take to get down this road? Let's start with you, Steve, and then Joe, and give the last word to Molly. One word, timetable. You don't have to do it now. You just have to set out a credible legislated full timetable. If you think about how auto-enrolment landed, nobody when the legislation went through in the noughties mm -hmm. gave a damn what the contribution rate was in 2019. And that's how we got there. It was far, you know, but, but we had that commitment. All right, we, we mucked about with the timetable a little bit, but essentially it held. And my, my great lamentation about the whole auto-enrolment journey to date has been in a way that when the legislation was originally set, it, it had an end point and we stopped dating 2019 and thought that would all be fine. And it, Adair Turner knew it wouldn't be. And had we said in the noughties and, you know, in the mid-2020s, and everyone has said, well, we'll never, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be dead by the mid-2020s kind of thing. So the one thing a government could do is set a legally set out timetable even if nothing happened for three years 
flogs. We just knew, because at the moment we're still stalling on implementing the 2017 auto enrolment review, for yeah. goodness sake. So a timetable would be the key. Very interesting. And my, rem my recollection of those early debates was that the one thing we did know, that this offer was so fantastic that it was both going to be totally affordable for people and at the same time was going to give them a really good pension <laughs> at the end. That was the, that was the promise above all, I think. Um, Joe, your observations on how we get from here to there. Um, I think I would agree with Steve and add to that that early on in the timetable should be the accessible rainy day savings part of this because I think we know it works, we know that people need it and it could make a massive difference. Um, uh, I'm conscious, you know, even the 2017 reforms for people on lower earnings, you know, making contributions from the first pound instead of on qualifying earnings, that's going to make a, a kind of meaningful difference for both employees and employers. Um, so, you, you know, building that into the timetable and thinking about the, the knock-ons from that, um, but also the fact that partitioning people's own money to the side to be accessible, um, you know, there aren't huge risks attached to that, um, but it would make a massive difference. And so early on in the timetable, um, I would put that. Thank you, Joe. Molly, uh, it's uh, your report with colleagues here. Your final observation. Um, yeah, I think I would agree with both Steve and Joe that I think this is a sort of a long-term strategy. It will take a long time, uh, particularly as government will have to sort of articulate these higher um, auto-enrolment contribution rates, particularly to employers as they'll have to um, increase their contribution quite substantially. Um, I think uh, it would be great if we could offer the um, the sidecar savings bit um, earlier because I think that is a big issue that lots of people are facing but um, I think one advantage with this being a long-term strategy is that it also provides time for other things to be in place which would make uh, these policies more effective such as pension cons consolidation so um, mm -hmm. that would definitely make the the loan um, yeah. the loan aspect of this policy much uh, much easier and potentially more effective yeah Thank you very much. Thank you to Steve Webb. Thank you to Joe Phillips. Thank you, of course, to Molly Broom, our author. Uh, particular thanks also to Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust for sponsoring this research. Thank you all for participating. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.